Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. This is the second part of episode 10, which was more about RuneQuest. And this has extra bits and pieces that didn't quite fit in it. It's a Wyrum's footnote, as we used to say back in the day, or a different world. Included in this part is the Games Master screen section. Rick Mainz, the president of Chaosium, will face my table of treasures, my plunder table, to roll utterly and completely at random selections from his amassed collection and talk about his experiences back in the day. Rick made his name at Moon Design Publications, republishing Gloranthan Classics, and one of the volumes he reprinted was Borderlands, Chaosium's campaign supplement from 1982. Blythe joins me to open the box on the supplement and we look back on how we played it back in 1983 and again 30 years later in 2013. The last section opens up the post bag that's arrived on Joe Myth's caravan featuring listener feedback. Okay ramblers, let's get rambling. Gensmaster Screen Welcome to Games Master Screen. I will be putting up a Games Master Screen between me and President Rick Mainz and I'll be rolling on this old school table to make five special selections from his famous collection. Hello there, Rick. Hello, Dirk. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm actually using this uh, Games Master Screen. This is one that I got with the uh, RuneQuest uh, Kickstarter. It's one of your pieces of work, this, I think. Oh, lovely! Yeah, it's a it's a tribute to the original uh, Judges Guild uh, RuneQuest Judges Shield that they made many many years ago when GM screens were a lot simpler and flimsier, but lots of great tables. I think I never actually had a I never actually had a a, a Games Master screen, the Judges Guild one. Um, I made my own from the tables that I pulled out of the middle mm-hmm. of the of the rule book. Uh, so. It's well, great. I know what to, I, I know what to get you for the holidays then, because <laughs> I, unfortunately the judges guild judges screen it's very easy to find it still in the shrink wrap after thirty years. That's true of a lot of uh, judges guild. Um, uh, yes, sadly, sad but true. There's still a lot of judges guild product in the shrink, be it Duck Pond, Duck Tower, City of Lay Tabor, or any of the other things they did. Oh, plus a lot of D and D stuff as well, but. Uh, I happen to have five of them still in the shrink, Dirk, so I'll try to send one your way. Oh, that's great. Thank you very much. I actually uh, transferred the, the City of Lay Tabor into uh, Dragon Pass. So Interesting. My my Glorantha did vary uh, back in the day. <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> we okay. know it's inevitable, and we actually, you know, enjoy that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to uh, I'm going to roll on this uh, this table I've got here, Rick. And first up. I've got all the eights, 88 Stormbringer. Ooh, 
My Stormbringer experience started back in 1981 when the game came out. My GM, Tim Webster, brought home, or, or when I got to his house, he had all set to go a big box game called Stormbringer, which he had just purchased from Ryder's Hobby Shop in, in Kalamazoo. And so we started rolling up characters. And, you know, the one thing that some people may not remember about Stormbringer is that it was basically RuneQuest in the Young Kingdoms. It was the, you know, Michael Moorcock RuneQuest game. And it was very much an offshoot of RuneQuest. And so, yeah, we, we started rolling up characters that day. And I happened to get to... My background was from the uh, island of the Purple Towns. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and, and did you play it often? Uh, and is, is this one of, one of your core games? Well, I, we, we played it uh, every week for several months. The, the problem at that time is it's an, almost an embarrassment of riches, is that in 1981, 82, Chaosium came out with so many amazing products that you always wanted to try the next one and so you know we have been playing RuneQuest for a while the big box of you know second edition RuneQuest and you know it's going to spill over to other items so I don't want to give it away too much um, but you know when Stormbringer came out we played it but then other great stuff came out a few months later and wanted to try those as well so we took a break and sometimes we didn't go back but oh I Stormbringer was amazing I was an I was one of the agents and I was an elementalist of Strassa. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but um, I was so I, I was always summoning water elementals, and I remember us trying to get demon armor and demon weapons. But you know, my absolute favorite thing in the game was when, uh, after getting very badly wounded, I got to roll on the table and I got impressive scar. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised that you managed to keep a, a character for so long because I don't think I ever did. I think uh, I used to have to roll a new character every week. <laughs> I, I, I guess I was lucky. You know, I'm, I'm a real Munchkin power gamer. Back when you know Munchkin was not a Steve Jackson card game, wonderful as it is, and I love playing that with the kids. Uh, but no, I, I loved rolling up characters that you know could work every you know plus and minus of the system and get every percentage out of things. And you know, oh, I should go for con over decks or you know things like that. And so, yeah, I managed, my one character managed to survive through the campaign before we kind of moved on to other games. But, oh no, we had a Pantangian sorcerer and we had me from the Isle of Purple Towns and I was mainly a, a sailor and, I said, you know, agent of Strassa. And I, I loved summoning water elementals. That was a, a big part of my character. And uh, were you a Moorcock fan at this point? I had read a couple of the Stormbringer books, which is why I was very interested in playing the game. But this made me want to read them all because one of the things that Chaosium was very good at doing was giving you in the back of their books a list of you know potential reading material. And that included a list of the books for Stormbringer. And so I was like, I haven't read this one and that one. And so uh, you know, started grabbing the other ones that I hadn't read and read through the whole series because of that after seeing what was in the appendixes. The, the most striking thing, I think, of um, that early edition of uh, Stormbringer is the cover. Um, you know, the, It's just so so uh, impressive, isn't it? It's, uh, it's one of the best, I think. Oh, yeah. Frank Brunner did a wonderful job on all the art in there. You know, to me, the, the, 
the the cover is awesome, no doubt about it, especially on the box set. Uh, but it's it's the one of Grom, you know, with the uh, yes. holding you know, with the with the trees and the and the ship and all that. That that is such an evocative picture. So I love the Brunner art throughout that whole book. So the edition you've got is that the a mint edition? So what what did you get? In yes. That, what did you get in that first uh, first box then? Because we had the uh, the narrow one, the the thinner box. Sure. The the big box. I mean, you know, one of the nice things is that Chaosium has always included in their box sets, especially in the Golden Age, that nice sheet of paper of what's in the box. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm uh, looking through the box right now. You know, it has you know cardboard cutouts of uh, you know monsters and characters. It has you know the perfect bound Stormbringer book. It has character sheets. It has dice. It's got a nice map of the Young Kingdoms, and I always loved Yurik Chodik's maps in yes. the Chaosium box sets. And so, love that map. I know because I was from the island of Purple Towns, I always wanted to sail around and go to other places, especially places in the books that I you know, read about but had never been to. In my box, and this is one of the things I love about the big boxes, is I've got a lot of these Stormbringer supplements. You know, I got the Stormbringer Companion, I got the White Wolf book, you know, with the Temples, Demons, and Ships of War. I got Ken Ralston's, um, you know, Black Sword scenario, Pursuit of the White Wolf, and I got the second uh, Stormbringer Companion, Demon Magic, and they all fit in the box, which is wonderful. Um, bring bring back those... the boxes. Bring back the boxes, I say. <sighs> You know, I, I love boxes, but they are one of the worst things to ship and, and, and not have them get damaged. It's the, it's the most common thing that gets damaged. Like, I love the slipcase that was done for the 7th edition, uh, Call of Cthulhu, but it's the most commonly damaged thing in the whole thing. Yeah. And, and, and the, like Horror on the Orient Express, you know, it, it that almost, <laughs> uh, you know, made them double print, you know, especially like just a quick digression story. When Chaosium did the first horror on the art express, they had it in almost like this, uh, cigarette packet, very thin, flexi cardboard cardstock type of packet, you know, kind of almost like a big tuck box for cards. And it actually bankrupted the printer that did that really? because they had, because they had so much damage just putting the books inside of that because they, they there was not an extra millimeter or you know you know spare you know eighteenth of an inch of space where they were damaging half of the boxes just putting the product into it and then of course when they arrived at various distributors and everything else there was a lot of damage I think they had to do I don't know how many multiple print runs of boxes just to box that product and the anecdotal story I heard from Greg is that it put that printer out of business. Wow. See, I, I, I always uh, loved the box. Um, in, mm -hmm. the U, in, in the UK, um, Gaines Workshop moved away from uh, boxes. And I, I always used to think that it was down to the fact that um, there's uh, there's no VAT on books over in the I, UK. Yeah. Oh, no, that's a huge thing. I mean, yeah. I know that it, it caused a major backlash for RuneQuest 3 when it came out in the UK is that the VAT on that boxed edition made it just unaffordable. It was expensive anyway, but just, you know, now England has 20% VAT on stuff. It was thinking about like 15 or 17% back then, but still throwing that kind of sales tax on top of it, 
just made it almost unaffordable. I, I've heard that story so many times about people said I didn't get third edition because of that. Yeah, absolutely. So it, you've got your, your Stormbringer uh, box there. Now, I would be failing as a podcaster if I didn't ask you what are the chances of seeing a Kickstarter in the future to bring Stormbringer <laughs> back to life, back into print? It's it's not impossible. It's just, I mean, we, we have, you know, obviously all the files from all the classic Stormbringer material. It's just a matter of we don't have the license with Michael Moorcock right now. But is, but, that, is that something you're working on? <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll just, I'll just say that it, it's not impossible that that'll happen. Right. It just, it's not, it's not anytime super soon. Right. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> I, I, I will say this though. Yeah. I've always had a personal desire to see Stormbringer in print again. Well, that, that is exciting. That's exciting. Right, perhaps if uh, together we can summon Ariok, uh, we, we can make this happen. I, I, I like your style. I like your style, Burke. <laughs> Okay, let's go back to the table. All right. 23. And this is... Ooh, good. that's an impressive scar, by the way. <laughs> that's uh, Griffin Mountain. Griffin Ooh. Mountain. This is one of my all-time favorites. This is really the biggest and longest RuneQuest campaign back in the day that I played in. And we, I think we, because I was a player, I can't, I can't verify it, but I think we played every page of that wonderful Perfect Mountain book. How, how did you get into the adventure? What, what was your character? Uh, I played uh, Blazering from one of the Citadels. I'm trying to remember exactly which one you think I'd know. It certainly wasn't Elkoi and it wasn't Daikin. It must have been Trillis. Um, that was our first trip to, we just outside of Trillis. That was our first big trip to the big city. And I remember that's where we met Joe Myth, who hired us to be on his caravan. What adventures did you go on? I believe that you, I, I remember you, you telling me in some e email correspondence that you encountered Gonata. Oh, yes. I mean, we, we made the three Citadel tour because that's just the big thing to do. Yeah. Uh, and then we headed up into the wilds on his caravan with, you know, him and zigzag patrol, uh, zigzag the troll and his, and his wife and such. We were the caravan guards, or at least part of the caravan guards. We met Gondol Holst along the way and a few other uh, classic encounters. And then we headed up to giant land into the mountains and we ended up in Gon Orda's castle where I got to roll the people sized dice down the hill and won. Uh, you know, he, he did uh, pick us up and we were told that he was looking for ducks and it, it was a wonderful time there. That's where we, I met Mr. Greatness, the Morakanth, who actually has a Morakanth thumb. And uh, so, oh yeah, no, it, it's a wonderful set. You know, it, it's it's also got one of my favorite maps in it. And uh, so I, you know, I'm pulling the map out of the. Well, it's already detached in the book I have here. So so I'm taking the map out and having another look at it again just to bring back some memories here. But oh yeah, we went all over this map, up into the eleven big giant mountains. I'm actually looking at the Games Workshop version of this particular book, you know, the one with the rolling die on the cover. Yeah, that's the one we Very, had here. Yeah, in the in the wonderful A4 format, the taller and the slightly skinnier uh, paper size. But yeah, unfortunately, you know, the, the one thing is the Games Workshop version has a smaller printed map. 
Ah, right. So it's uh, it's not as it's not as it's 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 not as big a sheet of paper. Right, like quite got, a bit. I've got my copy here actually. Uh, mm -hmm. Unlike yours, mine's uh, held together by sellotape, and uh, the pages are falling out. So. Well, you know, the one that took all the beating in our campaign was owned by Tim, our uh, game master. So this is a copy I picked up after the fact. I, I, I picked up one when I was in the UK. I, I didn't even know the UK had done editions of uh, various RuneQuest, you know, and other uh, Chaosium publications until I got over there in the 90s. I was woefully ignorant of all the uh, licensees who did wonderful editions of the Chaosium products. And a, and you've got um, a collection of the uh, Citadel miniatures as well, haven't you? Oh, I love the Citadel miniatures. All things Game Workshop, especially the Citadel minis. Turning around and looking over at the shelf behind me here, you know, I got all sets one through seven and all the variants, you know, about 20, 25 boxes of them sitting on the shelf, along with a couple of cases of the painted ones. I'm a, I'm a lousy painter myself, never really got into that. But, uh, you know, over in the U.K., I met a guy named Jim, wonderful miniatures painter, and uh, he was happy to paint up my collection of all the Citadel box sets. So I just uh, try not to let my kids around them too much because they are, every one of them is all lead. <laughs> and, and so as a collector, I'm sure you've sought out some of the uh, specials that were done as well. They did some for the uh, some of the shops opening in the UK. Oh, yeah. The the Samurai Duck, or the I think it's the Manchester special, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got one of those in the baggie, and I got one of those painted up. And then there's also the the uh, rabbit brew that was done. Oh, I've not seen that one. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a modification of a an assassin figure they did. But yeah, I, you know, the tracking down Games Workshop special editions and Citadel minis variants and things like that. That's a real art in itself. And I have a few collector acquaintances and friends who, you know, have all kinds of things that were very, very super limited editions. Um, but I, I mainly just have all the core Citadel RuneQuest stuff. Well, our route into uh, our route into Griffin Mountain was uh, via Borderlands, so we actually did the final trip up the uh, River of Cradles uh, and and got into Griffin Mountain that way. Yeah, no, I, I wish I could have done that. I, you know, it's because it's it's funny because we played Griffin Mountain when it came out in '81, and then of course Borderlands came out after that, so we really didn't have the option of doing it in the order that Borderlands suggests. But I know when we did the Glaranthan Classics, we definitely set it up where, you know, we uh, you, you could uh, do it with a, a lot of gusto and do all the Borderlands and then switch right over to Griffin Mountain. Great. And have you been through the uh, Borderlands campaign? Did you go through it back in the day? Uh, we played a bit of it, but just a couple of scenarios because we weren't new characters by then. And, you know, a lot of Borderlands, one of the beauties of it is it introduces new characters like a lot of the supplements did for RuneQuest. And so because we had already, you know, I was a, I was a Isseri's rune priest by then. Uh, I, I, I wasn't a beginning character, so some of the early scenarios didn't really make a lot of sense for us. So we just mainly headed down toward Pavis and wanted to explore the Big Rebel and did a few Borderlands encounters and adventures along the way. I think what it's showing that, Rick, is that you're definitely um, more of a power gamer than we were because... We just went through characters like you know, I. I never got to uh, uh, rune lord level or rune priest level. I think we were just too brutal with each other. Uh, there were there were uh, we 
yeah, I, I guess you know a lot of a lot of GMs they maybe are less hesitant or more hesitant to kill off characters. Uh, certainly, several people died in a lot of my campaigns. I know I went through D and D characters when I was playing D and D like water. Uh, a lot of those died, but I, I, I was one of these people that didn't want to die. So yeah, my character he, he was still alive uh, by the time I stopped playing RuneQuest back in the day. And and who knew as uh, uh, you know back in the day playing an Isaris uh, Rune Priest that you now you would be heading a, a company like Chaosium. As a, hey, as you know, a, just I, I like to just believe some things were meant to be. Meant to be, yeah. exactly. And so I, I, you know, I, I got to play all the Chaosium big boxes when they came out. I got to be there, you know, starting in the late '70s all the way up through all the wonderful things they released, and it was just a wonderful time to be a gamer, especially as a kid, where you had a lot of free time all summer long with the wonderfully long summer vacations we have in the United States, you know, from. Middle of June all the way through till September. A lot of good gaming time to get in there. And I also did a lot of gaming on my uh, Boy Scout trips, especially if we had a long bus journey somewhere. We were always gaming, you know, while we were uh, watching the miles roll by. Well, let's go back to the table. And right, next up, it's 66. It's Traveller. Ooh, yeah, not everything I play is all about Chaosium games. And, you know, Chaosium didn't do a lot with science fiction in particular. But even before I started playing some uh, of the Chaosium games, I managed, this is something I bought myself, uh, was the small black box of Traveler with the, you know, the initial books in it. And so... I unfortunately lost that box. It's one of the few things in my game collection that I didn't manage to hold on to. I always tried to take good care of my toys, so to speak. But the Traveler box, somewhere along the way, it did not survive. But still got the books that came in the box. And, you know, the, the one thing about Traveler I never realized at the time is that you're basically paying a pensioner. <laughs> or we say retiree in the states but you know it, it it never really sank in that i here i was happily rolling up some creaky old geezer who was 60 65 you know whatever it took whatever number of rolls it took until you got a scout ship yeah, yeah. well as a power gamer you'll have been uh, pushing the uh, terms in the military as far as you could so. Oh, yeah. No, I always had maximum seniority to get my mech tech elect skills up, as I used to call it. Is this a game again where you were mainly the player or, or as a referee? I was just a player in this one as well. I, uh, I've i only refereed a few specific things. Um, but you know, especially back in the day, I was always I always wanted to play. I always wanted to get my characters, you know, better weapons, always very much into getting all kinds of cool loot. Uh, and so with Traveler, it was always getting a bigger and better ship, you know, back in the day when they measured computers and the number of tons that they took up and okay. stuff like that. <laughs> you know, I, I always, one of the big things is our group, we were always trying to you know, get bigger and better ships. And for a while it was like, Hey, let's, you know, especially when the, the books related to building ships came out, it was, Hey, let's hollow out an asteroid and have basically, you know, our miniature version of the death star. And <laughs> So it was, it was always getting a bigger ship and then basically being pirates to attack somebody else and steal their bigger ship from them. And did you play many of the um, published um, scenarios or adventures or were they ones that were written by uh, your referee? 
We we played one. It was actually the Judges Guild marooned on Ghost String, I think it was. Um, but it was that was mainly homebrewed stuff. Uh, I played a lot of Traveler with my Boy Scout buddies because it was really good for pickup games, and so uh, we we usually played a lot of whatever people thought of at the time. And does your um, collection extend to? getting more traveler stuff so for example have you got the um citadel miniatures for traveler i i don't have any of the miniatures for traveler but i do have a pretty close to complete set of the little black books plus all of the wonderful reprints done by the far future enterprises oh, you know yeah. they did the the omnibus books so i've got all those but i have but those are just some a recent acquisition uh, they were half off at a bookstore, so I bought a bunch of them. But the little black books, I kept getting them as they came out, and I got a lot of them when I was over in the UK. It was, I, un, unfortunately, a lot of uh, my friends or friends of friends, especially up at uh, Convulsion, they would be getting out of gaming or wanted to thin all the games they were no longer playing and sell them to other people at the bring and buy at Convulsion. And you could pick up stacks of stuff for not so much money. And I was always happy to round out my collection of this or that, at, at uh, especially at Convulsion. Well, let's go uh, back to the table. And uh, next up, it's 70, and it's the Dungeon Ooh. Master's Guide. Ooh, yeah, this is one of the first things I ever bought for role-playing, and I'm taking off the shelf my 1978 Dungeon Master's Guide. I think it's the second printing, but I'm not positive. Um, little, certainly well-loved and well-used, but this is really the first big uh, book. This was, you know, the, the biggest role-playing game book I can think of from that era. You know, you know you're talking several hundred pages, and this is where I, I spent a lot of time uh, prepping adventures and creating characters, but I was in a campaign playing as a player. But I, I definitely owned this one. And, you know, this is what really set the hook deep. This was one of the first things I... This was before I was into RuneQuest. Really? Because we, we uh, pose a question in our podcast about um, Dungeon Master's Guide or D&D. Uh, do you think that power gamers are drawn towards D&D or does D&D make power gamers? Um, well, obviously you either got a power gamer inside of you or not. And I think D&D just gives you a way to express it. I, I, you know, I, some of the things, especially all the treasure tables and then the, the, the artifacts, which are true power gamer constructs, you know, unique, super powerful items. Uh, they were almost irresistible. <laughs> it's all about the numbers a, a lot of it you know i you, you certainly get very hooked up uh, hooked on getting experience points and how much gold you got and i don't get me wrong i i loved it to death you know i, I can remember when i got my first vorpal sword <laughs> you know i can i can remember uh you know especially because star wars was big at the time i kept begging my uh, dungeon master brian uh to let me come up with some type of vorpal sword that was basically a lightsaber <laughs> and I was willing to pay any amount of money to have one crafted for me. And eventually he relented and my uh, paladin had basically a, a, a lightsaber vorpal weapon. Um, this was, you know, when the monochrome uh, series of Against the Giants came out, you know, yeah. the Steading of the Hill Giant uh, Chief 
and uh, the glacial rift of the frost giant and the hall of the fire giant king and so yep my uh my collection of characters and the other guys in the campaign we basically went after giants and one by one you know looted every one of those places <laughs> great fun although although with the 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 hill giant um i remember that you know this big wooden fortress that it starts out with, we end up burning that down. <laughs> so we, we mainly had to fight all of the dungeons underneath. Okay, let's have a, a final roll. I'll make it a big one. It's uh, 91. It's, Ooh. it's Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. You know, this is what stopped us from playing a lot of Stormbringer because Call of Cthulhu came out in the same year that Stormbringer did. And this, you know, once again, it was set up as, you know, a RuneQuest uh, derivative. You know, a lot of people think of Chaosium as, oh, well, basic role playing is their big generic system. But there was no such thing as basic role playing as its own game uh, for a long time in Chaosium's history. Really, uh, that came out in the 90s. They did have a very slim 16 page introduction to role playing. That was called basic role playing, but it really wasn't a game. It, it was really just, you know, a few pages of here are some basic things you'll find in all our games. And here's what it's about, you know, playing in a role playing game. It, it was not meant to be its own rule book or anything. It was really in some ways the kind of thing you could hand to your parents and say, this is what this satanic stuff is really all about. It's 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 not about being a witch or summoning things in real life or anything like that. You know, with the whole mazes and monsters craze that swept the United States. It was really just a, an easy way of saying this is what you do in role playing games. And um, so, you know, Call of Cthulhu and Stormbringer, when they were first being developed by Chaosium, they were both just RuneQuest in a different setting. You know, like not to make light of it, but, you know, Stormbringers kind of a rune quest in the young kingdoms and call of Cthulhu originally was set up as rune quest in a horror setting. In this case, the 1920s. When I, when I, uh, I started playing, uh, call of Cthulhu, I had no idea who HP Lovecraft was. Uh, Me either. Yeah. Yeah. No clue. I know, I know our GM, Tim, he was a pretty well-read guy. And he had read some H.P. Lovecraft, you know, some of the classic, you know, Color Out of Space and uh, you know, The Call of Cthulhu and things like that. But I'd never heard of anything like that at all. In some ways, you know, Chaosium is largely credited with bringing H.P. Lovecraft back out of, secure, uh, out of obscurity and into the common mainstream with The Call of Cthulhu game. So it must feel a great sense of responsibility uh, because of all the brands that uh, chaos seems responsible for this is the one isn't it this is the uh, it's the biggest yeah. it's it's the big global one and it's it's an incredibly popular genre i i enjoyed playing call of cthulhu when it came out uh we, we only played it for a little while just because other things kept coming out by chaosium you know it wasn't long after that that you know Ringworld came out pendragon came out you know, it, it, it was you, there was always so much new to try. It was hard to stay focused just any one game, especially if you like trying different games, you know. But I, I loved my gangster with his Thompson submachine gun with a whole big 50-round drum of silver bullets in case we met anything undeady lycanthropy type of stuff. You know, once again, big power gamer. Nothing nothing says power gamer more than a Thompson submachine gun. <laughs> so when did you first encounter Sunday? I I believe I met Sandy Peterson at RuneQuest Con 1 in Baltimore. 
And so I, I know I met Greg there for the first time, and I'm pretty sure I met Sandy there. You know, it kind of, you know, it's hard to believe that RuneQuest Con 1 was 30 plus years ago. Uh, you know, back, I'm sorry, 20 plus years ago in 94. Got to watch my math skills here. You'd think as a power gamer, my math would be better. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was, you know, it was over 20 years ago. And I met a lot of people that weekend. You know, the, the, uh, one of the dots from Avalon Hill was there and I made the mistake of <laughs> complaining <laughs> about his game without knowing who he was. He was handing out errata sheets, um, for RuneQuest 3. You know, they had this little errata sheet. And I made some comment about, I wish they would have gotten their act together and actually put it in the game. I don't know what kind of clowns they got running Avalon Hill. <laughs> he just kind of, he's like, I, you know, that's me. <laughs> Brilliant. But, but uh, yeah, uh, that was the younger of the two dots. That was uh, Baby Dot, not Papa Dot. But with Call of Cthulhu, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, big brand it's it's way beyond just the call of cthulhu game you know you, you see cthulhu references you know name the popular social media or television shows or movies or you know a lot of things it's it's definitely a part of you know common culture today it's it's way beyond uh, call of cthulhu the role-playing game but call of cthulhu is really what i think really got the whole bandwagon underway it's it's kind of uh, similar, isn't it, with because uh, because Cthulhu and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, in the same sense of uh, Glorantha as well. There's kind of been a proliferation of uh, rules and systems around um, around the setting. Do you think that uh, how how does that make it difficult for a, a a games company to kind of position themselves? Well, I mean, the the reason we did Thirteenth Age as well as, you know, of course, the RuneQuest rules and HeroQuest. Part of it's just historical, you know, uh, pull with, you know, Greg always wanted to do a high-level uh, epic version of RuneQuest, but he couldn't find a way to make percentile numbers work when you're talking not 100% skill or 300% skill or 500% skill. You know, the numbers just don't really work that well. So we came up with a new rule system that portrayed higher level stuff all the way up to God level, you know, with the mastery levels. And, you know, we want people to be able to experience the world of Glorantha with that type of rules. And then, of course, we obviously want to support RuneQuest and its approach with the percentile based and, you know, the stats and all that. That's, that's a very known quantity. Uh, although we are in the new edition of RuneQuest, bringing out a lot more of the runes and how they relate to developing your character and powering your character and possibly limiting your character. And and then with 13th Age, you know, the, the big, the, the big uh, behemoth in role-playing games is the D&D rule system. It's got a number of varieties between Pathfinder and the latest 5th edition of D&D and so on. And we wanted to appeal... Uh, you know, because a lot of people are like, well, I don't mind Glorantha, but I, I like playing D&D with those rules. Why do I have to learn a whole new set of rules if I want to play, you know, in Glorantha? And so we wanted to give people a bridge to Glorantha uh, through a, a D&D friendly type of rule set like 13th Age. So, but with the Cthulhu, it's different, isn't it? Because um, obviously with those um, systems, um you know, to some some extent, they were within your within your gift, aren't they? But they, there is a proliferation of uh, oh, yeah. uh, Cthulhu material, uh, whether it's board games or things. So, how does it? 
how how's it changed to make uh, Call of Cthulhu distinctive uh, amongst those? Well, you know, it, it's it's obviously has a, a wonderful thirty five year publication history. Yeah, and you know, we're currently up to product numbers in the hundred and forties. So you're talking, you know, hundred almost one hundred and fifty products that relate to it. So if you want to do role playing. And you uh, certainly are willing to get supplements that were written a number of years ago. What, you know, a lot of them are available as PDF, of course, since PDFs never go out of print. But you know, it's not too hard to get a lot of the older supplements still printed. You know, between eBay and other various online retailers and all that. Um, plus, we sell a fair bit of the back catalog and want to get some more of that back into print through print on demand. But you know, it's just such a vast uh, catalog to go through. And you know, in the end, to me. Whether a company is successful with Cthulhu or not is not because it has the name Cthulhu on it, but because it's got awesome writing. That's just yeah. you know, a real pleasure to read. And you know, you think of iconic names like Sandy Peterson and what he's written. You think of Keith Herber and other people like that, all the way up through the current crop of writers. You know, Mike Mason and the people that work with him. Uh, you know, Paul Fricker, and you know, I, I, I hate to not mention certain names, you know, so I'm not trying to omit anybody's name on purpose. But, the, you know, it, it's those, you know, Mark Morrison in Australia. They, they write such fantastic stuff. And one of the great things is a lot of those guys got their start with Call of Cthulhu RPG writing, and they still want to write for kind of the granddaddy of them all. And, you know, that's what, that's what you know, makes a quote unquote. Cthulhu author kind of earned some of their street cred as they've written something for Chaosium. And so we really take the great writing seriously. And, you know, we wanted to combine that with great presentation, and great layout as well, which is one of the things that Chaosium was kind of falling behind the curve on. And have you ever played uh, with Sandy? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. Uh, I got to play with Sandy out at Eternal Con. It was called Tentacles at the time. It's you know it's been a convention that's been around since the '90s, and you know every year in a wonderful youth hostel in a medieval castle on the Rhine, a lot of us would gather, about 100, 150 of us, and Sandy's a regular attendee, and I got to play in one of his Call of Cthulhu campaigns up in the up in the big castle tower. A lot of steps, but well worth the climb. And, uh, you know, I had that classic Call of Cthulhu experience with Sandy of I went nuts and then I got eaten. <laughs> Brilliant. You, you, got a, you got a twofer on that one. And that's any game that you can play where people are, you know, excited and happy and walk away feeling good about I went nuts and then I got eaten as the end result. That's a pretty good role playing game, if you ask me. Um. I could roll on this table all day, uh, Rick, because you've got such a fantastic uh, collection. Um, well, thank you. I just need to say that um, before you go, I believe that we share a talent um, that I would love to test one day. Uh, it's a gift from Humact, or something I've been working on. Uh, it, the ability to be able to um, get the alcohol content of beer <laughs> just by tasting. Is, is, is this true? I... I at the Kraken this year, yes, they uh, that kind of just happened. Didn't really plan anything like that. But we, one of the great things about European conventions is usually there's a, a plentiful supply of uh, various beverages, including uh, beer. And my good friend Fabian, who I you know met back in 1995, you know he was running Tentacles, and then 
after that, he then he and his uh, crew of uh, convention organizers started doing the Kraken, which is a wonderful convention. Um, yeah, that's where just through casual conversation, they started asking me, so how strong do you think this beer is? And I said, oh, it's probably about five and a half percent. And lo and behold, it was five and a half percent. I I did a lot of home brewing. Yeah, it's, it uh, takes a lot of practice, doesn't it? But you know, once you've got the gift, uh, it never leaves you. So maybe one day we'll meet in a grog shop and have a, a gut rock challenge. I would love that. Look forward to it, Dirk. It'll yeah. be a wonderful part of the whole experience. Well, thank. Uh, can I just say thank you for doing this, uh, Rick, and just as well to say thank you for your part in saving Chaosium because I think I'm speaking on behalf of uh, gamers everywhere. Um, from chaos springs great things and uh, uh, thank you for your hero quest uh, in actually saving saving this great company well I, I'm very happy to have played my part and thank you for that compliment I you know as as mob and Jeff and Neil and I have all said in a couple of seminars and such when it comes to about chaosium and how things changed and how we were happy to step in and, and do our part you know we grew up with chaosium since we were kids it's been a part of our lives for 30 plus years you know 35 years or more even and we we hate to see something that iconic and so wonderful and quirky and frustrating and lovable and <laughs> everything else we we didn't want to see it die and and fortunately we were in a position in our lives where uh, you know as i said some things were just seem to be meant to meant to be and us getting involved in chaosium you know, it was very quick and sudden at the time, but in some ways it had been one of those things that had been slowly percolating and building up to for many, many years. And we hope it continues on for many, many more years to come long beyond our involvement in the company. But no, very happy to have played our part in helping get things back on track and where we are today. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Dirk. All the best. All the best. Thank you. Open box. Welcome to Open Box. I'm with Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. So this is the point where we go back in time to when we first encountered the game and bring ourselves up to date to the present day and reflect on our feelings and thoughts on that. It's, it's nostalgia, but with a longing for the future, Blythe. I think you're right, yes. It's, it's forward-backwards thinking. <laughs> Forward, backwards thinking. Yeah. You're very good at that. <laughs> I've made a career out of it, to be honest, some people would say. We can see where we went in from as well as coming against. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you get the idea. Okay. Yeah. And this time we're opening a box. I'm going to call it, because this, this is what you find with Moon Design. Moon Design used this expression. I'm going to call this a foundational document. A foundational box. Foundational document. What does that mean? It means the foundations upon which we oh, right, build okay. our role-playing experiences. Oh yeah, well yeah, that's yeah, that's true. For this, in particular, yeah. more than more than any other in some respects. Yeah. Game, games aside, obviously. Yeah. So this is Borderlands, mm. a campaign supplement that was originally produced in the box by uh, Chaosium uh, back in the day, 1982. It's a real box, and it's the first in a sequence of great campaign sets. Uh, Griffin Mountain, Big Rubble, Pavis, and Troll Pack. And for us, it was a big event. I, I got it uh, for Christmas, I think, yes. in that year. Yeah. And uh, I remember being very excited about it. Cause I think I got Cults of Practice at the same time. And prior to that, 
we hadn't, we'd just been making it up, haven't we? We'd kind of had the rule book and didn't have anything else. Yeah, well, we, we'd done Grindle's Pawn Shop and then you'd gone on a kind of weird riff of your own invention. <laughs> We're <laughs> just making stuff up. Uh, yeah, so it, it had, it all been kind of made up. What people would call homebrew stuff now. We didn't call it that then. No, just but, make, um, making yeah, stuff just up. Yeah, just making stuff up. And this was the first proper campaign. And I think, I think it's fair to say, for you particularly, but also for me, it tied into that notion of playing it properly, doing it properly. And this was in here. Although we'd done Grindle's Pawn Shop, that, that's, even when we were new to it, felt very introductory, because it is very introductory. Yeah. But this felt like a proper big grown-up campaign, and inside the box of Borderlands would be all the secrets of how to really play it in Grolantha. And, and, it, and it's one of those things where, as a child, and I do it now, um, it built up in my imagination mm. as some kind of <laughs> grand, <laughs> epic... Scale. It is, but yeah. <laughs> and in order to fulfil that, uh, when I got it that Christmas, I think um, normally we would role play in my bedroom or your bedroom. Mm. And I think we actually upgraded to the dining room table. We did, we did. I have a vivid, <laughs> vivid memory of. Uh, Sitting around your dining room table for this one. So it required that. It's like the Queen or the, the local mayor had come for tea. For tea. Yeah. So we the best crockery. I do think I put the tablecloth. I think it might have done, yeah. But that didn't work particularly well. But. No. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was like a dignitary. It was come for tea. <laughs> Dirk's house. It was a, a, such a ma- major event, uh, just uh, <laughs> just getting ready ready to do this, and I kind of I'd build it up in your imaginations. So mm. We spent yeah. time yeah. Um, making the characters, and I suppose we'll come yeah, on to that. And, and I think as well, what what was was very telling about Borderlands, and this was true of a lot of KCM stuff. Um, when we'd go to Games Workshop, you, you had all the modules for D and D, didn't you? You know the yeah, modules yeah. for D and D. And, uh, and you had the little books for Traveller. And they all looked... Whilst the content... Well, not in the case of Traveller, content were rubbish, but in the, con- the contents of a D&D module, you know, as we later find out, um, were fine. They were, they were good, some good modules with good adventures. Nothing wrong with the content. But they didn't look as good as KSM stuff. No. It came in a box. And when you open this, you know, you get all the booklets and the map, and it just looks fantastic. The whole feel of yeah. it looks good. And on the back of uh, in the back of White Dwarf and the uh, the reviews, it looked great, didn't it? With that cover with the barbarians yeah, coming the over cover. there. Yeah, Because that's the thing, isn't it? The modules, the D and D modules. Would, would, I mean, Traveller ones are just black, black, yeah. black plain covers are boring. And uh, the D and D modules had some crappy illustrations. Had, had a reputation, didn't they? Taste yeah. out sort of a really naff picture of a beholder on the front of a module. That looked yeah. like a, I don't know, like a Christmas pudding with tentacles. But this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but this, you know, the, the terrible Christmas pudding monster. What's this? A Christmas the new monster? No, it's a beholder. All oh, right, it looked like that. <laughs> so let's uh, let's have a look inside the box then, because um, the the contents were great. I mean, mm. the uh, great supplements should unlock the imagination, and I think it's fair to say that yes, that's what this uh, this does. So inside, there's the uh, referee's handbook, which yeah. is the red document that had uh, background. That's the background of the campaign, 
um, some of the races that you encounter. Yeah, a bit more detail on like Morakanth and yeah. the other tribes and what have you. So it's set in uh, Prax, isn't it? So it's in the it's yeah. on the River of Cradles, right mm. at the um, southern tip of the River of Cradles, uh, where the adventures take place. And it's at a point of time where the uh, barbarians have been pushed back, haven't they? Yes. Um, and there's a bit of uh, jockeying for position. And in this area, yeah. it's been bequeathed to a lunar yes. uh, general, noble, yeah. noble, noble. Uh, former soldier, and he's been put in exile, and he's been given this land to kind of tame mm. and uh, yeah. create settlements for lunar people to move down the river and, and settle there. And the other stages, and the referee's handbook kind of gives you some flavour of the races. Yeah, and I think it's got some extra cults in there, hasn't it? Like the uh, Zola Fell, and there's a bit. Yeah, there's a bit of a bit. There's a seahorse cult or something, which is I think the Newtlins. The Newtlins cult. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. There's also the Green Encounter book, which we'll yeah. go in a bit more detail. Yeah. But um, you know, this is one of my catchphrases. The best thing about RuneQuest is that the NPCs are as fully fleshed out as the PCs. But the worst thing about RuneQuest is that the NPCs are as fully fleshed out as the PCs. So <laughs> it is, yeah, you get... That's the problem, I think, with it. Yeah, you're right there. Because the Encounter Book... I, I mean, we're going to discuss it at length, but I would say the Encounter Book is really the crowning glory of Borderlands, weirdly, yeah. because it moves away from the idea of wandering monsters so the idea that you just roll an encounter or you encounter some bandits or you encounter some this or some that um, because what it does it gives you the background of all the encounters it gives you the motivations doesn't it it yeah. gives you who they're allied to who they don't like what's going on between so there's for example you'll meet a tribe of I mean I think the best example is there's a tribe of or a group of oh, is it is it Impala riders um and they're a bit of a pain in the neck, and they they're kind of young, young kind of young bucks who wind you up, and the idea is that you know they they get on your nerves a bit. And one of them is a chieftain's daughter, so the, the difficulty is you you might end up fighting them, but one of them is a chieftain's daughter. And of course, you did, didn't you? Yeah, you ended yeah. up killing the chieftain's daughter. <laughs> oh dear! It was an accident. It was a terrible accident. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it's got that thing where it's not just a bunch of bandits it's people who have connections in the land yeah. motivations and, and actually from some of the encounters you can build little mini adventures almost yeah know? and what perhaps going to that I mean yeah. for this for this 12 year old opening it in mm. uh, back in uh, back in the day back in uh, 1982 Christmas 1982 <laughs> the best thing about it was that it just had stats blocks so yeah. it meant that I didn't have to roll any uh, yeah. characters yeah. so that was uh, the main and a nice map and a, a great nice map, map. Yeah. yeah so we should say about the map as well that yeah. um, you know it's one of KSM's fold out maps yeah it looks great on your dining room table. It does. <laughs> that's, um, why, that's why he did it on the dining room table, so I can fold the map out. And it shows this region, which is like a steppe region, isn't it? Um, mm, on the, yeah, on, yeah. In the river valley with uh, plateaus and... Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of a monument valley type. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, yeah. Place, that feel to it, yeah. It? yeah. And then there's the crux of the... Uh, box which is the seven scenarios yes. which are presented mm. as like pamphlets yeah. and they're numbered uh, one to seven to seven and the intention I think is for you to do them sequentially yes uh, during, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah well I think that's very much the intention because they are 
I mean, we might talk about the difficulty of Borderlands um, in terms of characters' progression later, but they they sort of progress in that way, don't they? So they get progressively Yeah, they get harder. progressively more difficult, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I, I think I think it's fair to say that there is a um, significant leap, so I think they yeah. start, yeah, starts yeah. off fairly gently, and then... Uh, it, does very, <laughs> it does actually, yeah. But yeah. there is also a timeline of events as well. So the, the scenarios happen in time, don't they? So yes. It's not like there's seven things that you can visit and do in any order the players want. They are timelined in, aren't they? Yeah. So one thing will happen, then another thing will happen. So in order to um, tame the land, to uh, achieve what he wants, uh, Ross of Rhone goes out to seek mercenaries. And mm. player characters play mercenaries yep. who are under the watchful eye of Dane, yep. his uh, sergeant at arms, a humat yep. uh, warrior who uh, kind of looks after him. And they have to sign a punitive contract. <laughs> contractual, isn't it? <laughs> An A4 sheet of... Uh, yeah. Legalese that yes. you have to sign, and it and it, it is it is quite a tricky contract, isn't it? It doesn't give you a lot, does it? I, know, I remember at the time, the, the, yes, it's almost like the biggest stumbling block is getting your players to sign this contract because when they read it, they get they get like you know ten lunas a week pay, yeah, um, yeah, ten yeah ten lunas a week paid in cash, <laughs> and a fair share of any loot received according to the normal conventions. But then some of the conventions are that anything you find the Duke gets sort of 90% of it, doesn't he? Yeah. So if you, if you go out and kill a load of brew and find a load of treasure, legally, you have to give it to the uh, Duke, don't you? Because it's on his land. It's like leaves one, you with sod all. It's like one of those uh, contracts <laughs> that uh, bands signed up for in the yeah. 60s and 70s, isn't it? <laughs> it is, actually. Yeah, it is very much, isn't it? You're oh, great, I've, found a magic, I've killed these brew, but I've found a magic sword. Brilliant. Oh, you're going to give that to the Duke. Yeah. All oh, right. Does he, could he, could he, well, he, he'll give you 10% back, but he can't give you 10% of a sword, can he? So here's a bag of 50 lunas, now off you go. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> You've got uh, food and lodging, what more do you want? What more do you want? You've got yeah. a hotel room to throw a TV out the window of. Like a rock band. So let's, um, let's talk through these um, adventures mm. then. So I suppose we should give out the usual uh, spoiler alert, but I suppose if you got this far, you know that we're going to spoil that. Yeah, it's difficult to talk about it without giving away some of the secrets. So if you're thinking of playing Borderlands... Look away now. Look away now. I'll put Cornwall in your ears. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe even just switch off the podcast. Maybe easier option, wouldn't it? Yeah. Switch off the podcast. Yeah, switch right. it off now. Zub it on a bit. <laughs> so, um, it starts off with um, scouting the land, and this is mm. a kind of overture, really, isn't it? It gives the mercenaries an opportunity to um, move around the place, mm. to go around the map and tour um, the Duke's lands and mm. encounter some of the barbarian tribes that inhabit yeah, thing. We should perhaps talk about Morakan, shouldn't we? Because it, this is where you really get introduced to Morakan. Because in the mm. uh, second edition rules, you only get like a paragraph describing who the Morakan are. But there's much more to the. the, the this there is. Yeah. The, to me, Morakan are the embodiment of what makes Glorantha interesting. Yes. Yeah. Because, yeah, they are kind of like tapir type. Bear tapir type creatures aren't yeah. they? kind of upright, intelligent, can speak and what have you. Um 
But the unusual thing about Morocanthum, what's difficult to get your head round, I think, particularly when you read the second edition rules, is that they keep people as herds, don't they? As animals. Yeah. They keep people as animals. They lost the wager, didn't they? With the well, it, the, in uh, it talks about yeah this this wager with the gods and all all that kind of glance and stuff about the the animals and the the men and the men lost the wager, didn't they? Or something. Yeah. And so the the Murakanth are like people and the people are like animals. And what I think it makes very clear in Borderlands, which I don't think comes across in the second edition rules, is that the beast men or the herd men aren't aren't people aren't sentient people like normal people are they no they are like animals they have the mind of an animal but they just have the body of a human effectively don't they yeah um, and there is a spell there's a spell in the uh, games master's guide for borderlands where you know you can the moracanth can turn a person into a herd person or they can grant intelligence to a herd person yeah so yeah, yeah. And I think uh, when we encountered the Morocanth, it was like the uh, herd people were like uh, meerkats coming out of the uh, long yes. grass. Yeah. Well, well, in Scouting the Land, you, 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 as the title suggests, essentially it's a scenario of wandering around these lands, yeah. having a look at things and just generally mapping it, sort of mapping it, looking at what he's got. And you do encounter Morocanth, and there's a kind of dispute, isn't there, between the Agimori, or a human barbarian tribe, and some more account who found Agimori sort of trying to free some of the herd people. Yeah. Um, you get involved in that way, in that dispute, don't you? Yeah. About how to deal with it. And what uh, and why I think it embodies Glorantha is that there is a, a kind of relativism um, mm, yeah, in yeah. place so that there is no right or wrong answer no. to this. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 yeah. whatever solution you come yeah. up with between the Agimori and the Morocanth yeah. has consequences has on consequences the, later on yeah. consequences on the rest of the campaign yeah. and and I think it was at that point when because uh, uh, we should say that we um, we played it again didn't we we missed this played it we? twice yeah, yeah we played have, it twice yeah. so we opened the box on it originally back in 1982 and we opened the box again on it in 2013, 30 years, 30 later, years later, to, yeah, yeah. And to play it again yeah. as adults. Yeah. And I think it was at this point in Scouting the Land, because mm. in, in, in the original, when I played it on that dining to, table on that fateful <laughs> day, I rushed through this because I thought, it's boring. It's boring, this. Yes. It's all talking, this. Yeah. I'm going, don't worry, you'll be able to kill something in a bit. Yeah. And I kind of race you through it so you could yeah. uh, see it. But I think we really enjoyed this scenario because it made us realise that what if we're the bad guys in this? <laughs> yes. What, I think that's one of the big problems with Borderlands when you become an adult and you've grown <laughs> up and you have a, perhaps a... I mean, a post-colonial for, analysis. Forgive us for saying, maybe a liberal elite view. <laughs> but no, there, there is a sense of you realise... And, and this becomes a problem much later on a bigger problem later on but you're right I mean you ran it originally and I ran it yeah. the second time but you become very aware that you are working for the man aren't you you're yeah. working for the imperialist Imperial forces. power and, and in essence <laughs> yeah. you are a death squad yes <laughs> death given, given licence mm. for genocide and ethnic cleansing yes that's essentially what it is essentially it, yeah. it parallels it parallels kind of 
you know, I don't know, Native Americans or yeah. British imperialism. It, it parallels that idea that you've been given some land, yeah. you're an imperialist leader, you've been given some land, and the people in that land are not necessarily evil. Yeah. They just live there, yes. and they're a bit different from you. But get rid of them. Can you just get rid of them? And if any of them kick off or cause any problems, just kill them. Yeah, you yeah. know, just and the encounter book um, is interesting as well uh, on this level because it gives you a little note for each encounter about what the duke's view of these different tribes and races are. So that you know, certain ones that you might encounter, uh, the duke just wants to get rid of them. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't care how you do it, just get rid of them. Yeah. So if you kill them, don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> and and you're right. Very early on, even before you start doing any of that. It becomes very apparent as a, as a man in the late forties. <laughs> Hang on a minute! Oh dear! <laughs> I mean, we still enjoyed it, but it was just a bit enjoyed more... it. But there was there was an uncomfortableness about yeah. And I'm sure as we discussed the other adventures, that will is will yeah. be a recurring theme. Yeah. <laughs> So skating the land does give a a, a flavour of uh, what's going to what's going to come, mm. and the second scenario, which is the uh, outlaw hunt, is fairly uh, lightweight, isn't it? It's uh, it's just a yeah. case of uh, getting rid of some duck bandits that have taken uh, uh, raiding ships on the river, ra- haven't they? Yeah, but immediately, I I mean, I, obviously, I wasn't a player, but I immediately liked the duck bandits. I mean, yeah. I would, wouldn't I? But I, I do like the duck bandits. I, I think they're. Quite that colourful characters. It'd be more fun playing a duck bandit, you mean, wouldn't it? And of course, in the uh, in the duck party, there's Pinfeather. Yes. Who uh, appears in uh, the original Apple Lane yeah. story? So yeah. it's quite good to have uh, characters reoccurring. It's a bit saucy as well, isn't it? This one. Oh, it's a bit, a bit rude, isn't it? Oh, what, what, what? do you not remember that there's uh, the ducks have been have been robbing ships and they've got loot, and uh, <laughs> this is no word of a lie. <laughs> it it says that they've. Uh, They've managed to steal some, and in inverted commas it says, naughty toys naughty. that belong to the wife of the governor of Prax. <laughs> and the, the ducks don't know what to do with the naughty toys, so they've just, they've just arranged them thinking that they're ornaments. <laughs> now, we find that funny now, but when we were 12, 13, I mean, Anne Summers didn't open in Bolton until the 90s. You know what they were talking about? Naughty ties, weren't they? Naughty ties. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well that's, that's quite funny. Governor of Prax is obviously away. Very yeah, often, he's, yeah. You know, he's a busy man, isn't he? <laughs> busy, man. busy man. But um, but I, I, joking apart, I, I think that highlights one of the nice things about Borderlands in that it's got lots of little details like that that are funny, quirky details that yeah. you think it has no relevance to anything, does it? That, no. but it's it sort of gives a bit of colour and a bit of vibrancy to the whole thing that the governor, the governor, the, <laughs> the wife of the governor of Prax has these things that they've stolen and they don't know what to do with them. It's just very funny and, and colourful, isn't it? Yeah. And I think Borderlands is shot through with that kind of thing and it's very good. I think the uh, campaign really starts to get its um, uh, get going with um, Jezera's Rescue, which mm. is the next, yeah. uh, next one, uh, for a couple of reasons, because I think... Um, it introduces Jezra, who's um, the daughter of the Duke, and therefore it kind of introduces the idea that there are uh, there are personalities and people in the fort for you to interact with. Yes, yes. 
um, mm. and get close to the family and uh, some of the happening. And even back in the day, even back when we were 12, we made a big play of that, didn't we? That, yes. Um, yeah. That kind of uh, day-to-day yeah. experience. We actually lived it in real time, didn't we? Because mm. he could back then, you know. It was like yeah. uh, the, the, these... Um, these tent poles of uh, episodes were there, but we spent a lot of time just milling around the fort yeah, and yeah. encountering people and yeah. uh, making enemies of people like Rat Tail, Poison Knight, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. those those kind of other characters that yeah. they have in there. But Jezra is the daughter of the Duke, and she gets kidnapped, mm-hmm. and it's an old-fashioned rescue. Yeah. And the second reason I think it is good because I think it's a brilliantly designed dungeon. A brilliant design. Big spoiler coming here. Yeah. Isn't there? Yeah. You're going to give this big spoiler away now? Well, I think we should. Because... <laughs> we, we warn people, haven't we? Yeah. Because yeah. it sets the tone, it sets the it sets the idea that this is a former... Well, this is a temple to Vivermont. That this yes, is, it sets up that... A, that a va- well, in, in Scouting the Land, you, you pass this tower, don't you? There's yeah. rumours that a vampire used to live here, so it sets up the idea that there might be a vampire in it. Yeah. It puts everyone on edge a little bit. Yeah. Vampires in RuneQuest, vampires in any game, but particularly RuneQuest, particularly nasty kind of creatures, kind of, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of see shapes, mm. bat like shapes. You do, wing shapes. Shapes yeah. coming over you it. Do. So, when, when you encounter it in Skating yeah. the Land. So, you kind of, as a, a party of adventures, you, you're preparing, yeah. uh, sharpening stakes and yeah. doing that, all, the, all the usual things uh, to go in there. And the reason why I think it's really well designed is that um, it's a tower that really you're forced into climbing up and coming down. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. there's a front door, but you can't get through that front door. Well, you can't because it's Tusk Riders, isn't it? And the, yeah. the, you can't get through the front door, and even if you do, there are, there are horrible big Tusk yeah. beasts waiting to go away to death. Yeah. <laughs> um, there isn't a vampire in there, but no. it, it, the whole thing creates the idea that yeah. Any moment around the corner, it's going to be. And a the wing, the winged creatures are gargoyles on the top, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. So yeah, it, it does. It kind of sets you up. I think as well. What's good about Jezra's rescue, um, is that it, we talked about the kind of imperialist dimension of it, which which is a bit tricky, but actually Jezra's rescue is the least like that, isn't it? Because yes. it is a rescue. It's a straightforward rescue. Young young daughter. He's his teenage daughter has been taken by Tusk Riders and you've got to rescue her. That said, again, I think my perspective as a, as a man in late middle age with a teenage daughter, I'd be inclined to let them keep her. <laughs> I think when we were 13, we were very, very keen to rescue the beautiful 18-year-old <laughs> Jezra. Um, but as a 48-year-old man, I'm inclined to say, well, you can keep her. Yeah. Well, just give him some money and say, don't hurt her, just keep her in there. I'm going on holiday for a couple of weeks. And when I get back, when we'll talk about a rescue mission, maybe. I did Ross of Rones, but he's like, he, he wants her back immediately, doesn't he? <laughs> Strange man. The, now, this, we, we, not, we talked about a, a step change, and then this is where the step change happens mm, in yeah. order of toughness. Yes. So the fourth adventure is the Revenge of Muriah, which yeah. is, um, Muriah is a, an old crone, a, a, He's mm. been wronged by the uh, villagers, yeah. Yeah. Um, and as a consequence, um, disease starts to infect the waters, yeah. and the mercenaries have to travel upstream, mm. uh, where they discover a brew nest, 
and it's kind of, the the brews are pretty tough. They are tough. I mean, you're talking. I think some tough brews plus a rune priest and a, you know, at least one rune lord. He's got 110 percent. You know, with a spear so it's, and, um, and spells coming out of their ears. I mean, you know, it's that's a Celtic feature. Has spells coming out of ears. <laughs> Thirty years on, uh, Blighty, I owe you an apology. <laughs> right, yes. Keep recording. Go on. It's a rare moment. <laughs> because you, you were put through the grinder, weren't you? I was a bit. Yes. I. I think. <laughs> I. I. I was. I think I lost one character for every game in this. At least one. So yeah. it, I was. I was essentially killed. In every single adventure, but I would like to get on my high horse at this point. The high horse. I'd like to bring the high horse. The horse. In. The horse. I'd like to. We bring haven't it seen in. the horse for a bit. We haven't. I'd like to bring it in. <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> Come in. Horse. Come in, Dobbin. <laughs> the high horse. It has to be said, doesn't it? We played Borderlands with someone else, didn't we? Yeah. And he did very well in it. He did. Dirt from the desperate. Did, 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 I think he survived well. the whole. Thing. He survived the whole thing. Did very well, and. After Borderlands, carried on playing him, and then we know. Um, I noticed that during some spirit combat, at a vital moment, he didn't roll the right number and scooped the dice up and claimed to have rolled it. And I thought, oh dear, oh dear, have, have we been had here? Has yeah. somebody got through Borderlands by <laughs> cheating, essentially? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that, that, that seems a, a terrible thing to say, but I think... Because, as you, as you say, um, I was very, very much of the opinion that, you know, the farm boy to rune lord Yeah, we all were. Narrative. I think that's how, we, that's how we played it. I think we got it into our heads, that's what you did. It seemed, it seemed like... The odd thing is, it seemed like cheating to bump your percentages up, didn't it? That yeah. seemed like cheating. So every character I created, I created a basic character... And of course, I just created a basic character and then played them against a brew rune priest. <laughs> and you know what? And this comes as a shock to everyone. I got killed. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I did, uh, what did I do? I had like a scimitar at 25%. Yeah. And he had a bastard sword at 120%. <laughs> and and, and some, some might say the bottom of the high horse, not the resourcefulness to cheat. <laughs> We didn't see it as a game, did we? No. We saw the game as a mechanism for telling stories. So it didn't seem a point to cheat it. It wasn't yeah. like a game you could win. No, no. But then it certainly felt like you'd lost when you got your head sliced off. A lot. And mm. I think that's why I think it's a foundational thing about how our approach to role-playing. Mm. It changed us yeah. as role-playing. Yes, it, it did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was very, very formative, yeah. So Revenge of Murai had a bit of a life of its own because... Um, Scholars of RuneQuest will know that it went on to appear uh, like an extension appeared in White Dwarf. Mm, and I yeah. think we covered this in the Old Scrolls episode uh, yeah, way back yeah, when. Yeah. Um, so it kind of, uh, it kind of a, had a spin-off adventure. The next one was The Grinder. This is the, uh, <laughs> the centrepiece, really, of the mm. whole campaign which is Five Eyes Temple. Yes. So Five Eyes Temple is a site of religious significance. <laughs> to an indigenous population. <laughs> to an indigenous population. You have to go and kill and yeah. destroy them all. And I suppose the the joke or the kind of um, the, the game in this is that 
they're neutlings. So neutlings are childlike uh, lizard type creatures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, it's going to be a breeze, this. Yeah. Yeah. And Five Eyes Temple gets its name through the five eyes, which five form caves, five caves. Yeah, right. yeah. Mm. So there's five ways into this place. Yeah. Each one as dangerous as the other. Yes. I so in there you've got a manticore, you've got a dragon, dragon. you've got uh, loads and loads of uh, um, encounters to well, do Well, I think with. to give an insight into how dangerous the five ways in are, I think there's one, one way in's not that dangerous and there's four that are dangerous. Uh, of the four very, very dangerous ones, the one with the dragon in is the least dangerous. Yes. It gives you some idea of how dangerous the other ones are because you can negotiate with the dragon, Krang the dragon. You can negotiate with him, but you can't negotiate with any of the others. So, yeah. And one of them's actually a dead end. Yeah. Isn't it? There's yeah. a troll, there's a troll tomb, isn't there? Yeah, which Lots is of spirit combat and ghosts. Yeah. It's really, really deadly. And it does don't actually take you anywhere. You have to come out and think oh, that was a dead end. <laughs> and um although you said that the uh, dragon one is um is one where you can negotiate your way through. Um, it does take you um, almost to the back way and where you can get trapped by wardings and yes you, you, can, you, yeah. you know you, yeah. you end up getting in but you can't get out um, so mm. it's it's a really tricky um, a really tricky dungeon I can't remember particularly enjoying running it back then but I enjoy I enjoy playing it as mm. a player um, back in uh, I didn't 2014. enjoy running it either I think it's very difficult to run because there are some odd things in there that you know don't quite stack up, and you think, oh, I don't know, how these things are supposed to react. So it's like a living, it's like a living dungeon, isn't it? So it's a yes. temple where these creatures live. So there's stuff in there that lives in there, it, it coexists with them. And uh, there are some visiting dragon newts, aren't there? But it doesn't. It's difficult because you don't quite know how, and it doesn't quite tell you how things are going to react and to you being there. That's quite difficult, and also. The prob- one of the problems is just simply the maths involved because the Newtlings are quite puny. And by this point, you're quite tough because you've survived Bruce, you've survived the Tusk Riders. So the only way you can really make it threatening is by having lots of Newtlings attacking you. But from a Games Master's perspective, that, that's really difficult to run because you need eight, yeah. nine, ten, twelve Newtlings, you know, and you think, oh God, you know. And it sort of brings out one of the flaws in the game system that once you pile in too many monsters, it, it's really, really difficult. I remember, I remember going home one after we'd done part of it one night. My head was in bits. I'm thinking, oh God, you know, all these newlings yeah. that, you know, you're just worrying about your two characters. I'm worrying about fifteen newlings in the room. It's very, very difficult because it doesn't have a kind of, you know, because it does the attack parry critical fumble strike right all those things going on it is very difficult to yeah. manage mass combats and it doesn't it doesn't have any rules in second edition for a mob attack does it no i know later editions of the mob and other games do it but RuneQuest 2 can do mob attacks so it's very difficult to run from that perspective um yeah but it's a very flavorful um dungeon it's an old-fashioned dungeon isn't it, it, it is, yes, and it's full yeah. of uh, colour and as you say um, some of the items you find are very interesting yeah, yeah, and yeah, the encounters yeah. are interesting and it puts you into uh, uh, tricky situations as a player which mm-hmm. are very enjoyable yeah. and it's an hard it's a hard act to follow and yes. I think this is where um, 
afterwards it kind of the campaign starts to yeah uh, dissipate doesn't it it does a bit yeah because yeah. Uh, yeah. after that you're expected to climb up the condor crags which are these huge yes. uh, monolithic yeah. um, uh, uh, outcrops where you have to climb to the top and recover the condor eggs mm. whilst being attacked by condors yeah yeah, yeah. Um, we had a lot of fun doing that though we did it surprised did. me actually because when as you say after Five Eyes Temple I was preparing condor crags and I remember thinking like I said, this is a bit of an anticlimax in a way because you've had this big dungeon and all this fighting and a dragon and a manticore and all this stuff. But actually, we had a lot of fun with Condor Cracks. Yeah. I think you, you and Eddie both said you really enjoyed it. Yeah, we you did. Know, yeah. It's, it's good, quite a good. Again, it's a little bit old school, isn't it? Climb up here, the big monsters. And, yeah. You know. It's dangerous climbing. Dan- climbing's dangerous and exciting, and there's lots of, there's lots of dice rolls. Again, a thing, thing that Borderlands does is it brings in. Um, climbing rules that are quite interesting and involve lots and lots of dice rolls so there's that sense in which you get quite high up onto these cracks to the to the point where if you fall off you, you, you're a goner there's no dice rolling involved you're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet up um, but there's enough dice rolls to make it feel dangerous but not stupidly deadly so it's not like you fail your climb roll you fall off and die yeah. You fail your climb roll, you do dexterity, you see if you can grab on, you see if you can do this. And so there's enough enough dice rolls between you and certain death to make it survivable, but also to make it quite quite exciting because yeah. it does feel dangerous. Well, it was exciting. Yeah, it, does, it replicates the idea of climbing yeah. quite well, I think. Mm. The final one is in, uh, into Giant Lands where the mercenaries have to, uh, it's a cross country. Uh, adventure isn't it you, you have to take the eggs from the condor cracks to gone Arta, who's a giant who lives up in the north and gone has got um, a sword which is uh, a family, family heirloom, heirloom yeah due. so it's 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 not they it, it, say it's a funny one because it it's a bit of anticlimax because it's difficult because it's it's the, one of the, it's that difficulty that you get the most difficult of adventures to run the journey, the long journey, isn't it? Yeah. So you, you go on a long journey, you meet barbarians, you're supposed to kind of perhaps get lost, run out of food. And it all sounds very well, but it's difficult to run, isn't it? Yeah. And I think I, I struggled to run it. I think you did back in the day. It was yeah. a difficult one to run. I think we went uh, through a number of horses as well, didn't we, in that camp? Because it's in a lot of floodplains. flooded rivers. And yeah. You, yeah, you can. And, and it's, it's tricky as well because when you get to Gonarta, he gives you the sword. The idea is what that you take the sword back. So you got to do it all again to get the yeah. sword back. And again, yeah. he doesn't, you know. Well, it leaves uh, it leaves you to uh, open up into campaign to big rubble. And yeah, Griffin Mountain. So it does say some some of the players might want to carry on into Griffin Mountain, uh, yeah. Balazar and up there. So the sequel, um, so. But but yeah, in theory, the the sword has to go back. So it's a tricky adventure to run. It's just. That thing, isn't it? It's always a problem, isn't it? With, with the idea, and I, and I think what's again what's telling is nowadays when we run in a game, we we will often do the kind of flash forward journey, won't we? Where we'll yeah. say, well, it's going to take ten days over difficult terrain, and there's going to be a couple of encounters, which I'll just jump to the encounter. I'm not going to say first day keep watch, do this. Second day keep watch at night, do this. But when we played it originally, that, that's the way we did it, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. it's quite difficult because it is a long journey. And I think when I ran it, 
it's a longer journey than I made out. I kind of cut it short in terms of days, but yeah. it's a very, very long journey, so it's yeah. difficult. The good thing about it is, though, there's a there's a bit of the adventure where you do challenges, don't you, against barbarian tribes. Yes. So there's an oasis that you find, and to get the rights, because you're not a tribe, to get rights to use the oasis, the barbarians challenge you to a, yeah. a series of contests, um, and if you win the contest, they allow you to use the oasis. And I think they kick one of the tribes out, don't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kick one yeah. of the tribes out. Um, but that's quite good. Yeah. But it takes a long time to get to that point because you've got to travel all the way up yeah. there. And I, I distinctly remember running that back in the day and having great fun with it because mm. by that time, although your character had gone through the grinder, um, your ultimate, I think your first ever rune lord. Uh, yes, my, my, yeah, the character went on to become rune lord had been rolled, so I was all right then. Yeah. I was surviving things. And you were enjoying it <laughs> I was a lot enjoying more. it more. So when we started this off, I um, described this as like a key text, a key campaign mm. um, for, for us and the reason I said that is because I think it kind of defines our approach to uh, story writing for games in that it's mission based so in there there are plenty of missions yes yeah, yeah. keeps go, players focused yeah go and do this yes go and yeah, do yeah, this yeah. but there's plenty of scope for exploration as well and yeah. sandbox and mm. You know, there's a few side quests that you can build yeah. into there when uh, that are built up through um, interaction with NPCs yeah. and characters. Mm. So I think it's got the best of both worlds, and I think that is what, for me, is lacking in some of the yeah. other stuff um, that I really enjoyed about this. And when I say that, that's why I negatively... Well, I, I judge other campaigns and other mm. material that was produced in the day negatively compared to this yeah. because this gave me what I needed back then yeah. and I'd say even 30 odd years now mm. this is exactly what I need I need um, a context a space to do something but some good old fashioned missions to accomplish yeah uh, I, think, I think that's true and I think what it does it, it straddles the kind of the old old role playing and new role playing so it is as you said at the beginning it's, it's sort of forward looking and backward looking at the same time so yeah. it positions it's the early 80s so yeah. you know role playing is still in the realm of go down a dungeon find this find yeah. that um, what Borderlands does it has that in the seven adventures it has very old school missions go and yeah. do this go and do that which is old fashioned which is the old way or, the, or was the thing the way things were done then but it's also looking forward because it's giving you fully fleshed out NPCs with motivations and it's giving you a, an area of land to explore where different things can happen and that's very forward looking isn't it that's more in line with the things you find in RPG supplements and adventures nowadays yes know? so it's yeah. got it's got the best of both worlds in a way I think if there's a criticism though is that it's only a minor criticism but I think the missions are very much do or die in that you have to you have to complete them so you have to kill all the brew you have to rescue yes. you have to get rid of you have to clean out Five Eyes Temple you have to do them and in a way that that's not not a criticism for it in the time it was written but maybe I suppose, nowadays I suppose it contradicts the idea that it's uh sandbox yes yeah, yeah it so runs against you, it because it, it straight jackets the players I mean I as we were saying earlier 
it is quite imperialistic. It is very much. There is an uncomfortableness to it, you know, yeah. in terms of what you're actually engaged in doing. And I think it would be very interesting to play it in a more open-ended way where, you know, maybe you, you, I don't know, you played someone else. Maybe you played the barbarians yes. fighting against the Jew. But what I think... Or the ducks as uh, agent provocateurs. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know. or the Newtlings or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. But I suppose what I'm driving at is because the missions are very much do or die, you, you, you have to be an imperialist death squad. Yes. You've not much option though. You yeah. have to do that because the minute you decide to make a pact with the duck outlaws or make a pact with the Newtlings, the whole thing goes out of kilter. And you, you could do that. But it would it would it would mean that you wouldn't do Condor Crags and you wouldn't do Into Giantland because you you've kind of taken a turn off the road. If yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Once you turn if you turn against the Duke, it all falls apart. The whole emissions yeah. fall apart. There's a bit. central assumption that you'll do his bidding. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the central assumption. And whilst it's quite tempting because there's lots of other things going on, but it's almost like teasing you to get involved in difficult to get too involved in them because you will have to go and do these things so these things come in uh, 30 year cycles in for the armchair mm, adventures yes. so when we're in the uh, retirement home sat in a yeah. uh, wing-backed armchair <laughs> on a dining table on a dining table not our own belonging yeah. to the care home we'll be sat there and we'll be doing it again is that how we'll do it do you think is that how we'll revisit uh, borderlands mm, i don't know I don't know. Like I said, if I was running it, I might say you're you're Newtlings. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, you could play Newtlings actually, because the the Duke does have some Newtlings who are on his side. Aren't yeah. They? It's, it's stiff tail. Yes. Newtlings. So you could play Newtlings, and you could you could kind of be double agents, couldn't you? You could. You could. So you could do it that way. You know. Could be double agents for Five Eyes Temple. The trouble is, Boss Thank you very much to Rick for spending time in his busy schedule to do an interview. It was fantastic. Okay, Blythe, thank a personal you highlight okay. from uh, next time, my experience of podcasting so far. Thanks for that. Uh, the present looks great for Chaosium, for an amazing future based on the prodigious past. The first part of the episode generated lots of listener responses, such as this one from Mr. MJ Cookie. As a recent recruit, can I just offer thanks for a really entertaining pod? Love the RuneQuest discussion and the callback to Quincy superhero Barbarian Duck, Master of Quack Fu. It fired a whole stream of memories from my early RPG days. RuneQuest was always our group's first go-to fantasy gaming and we were terrible snobs about D&D. As for Glorantha, love it and hate it in equal measure, mostly for the same reason, detail. My biggest bugbear was that you'd be happily gaming for some fairly standard Tolkien-esque elves and dwarves and then you'd buy the Elder Races supplement and learn that elves were walking talking shrubs and dwarves some hideous automata. The picture of elves in the second edition has much to answer for. Massive rewrites ensue. But on the other hand, I love Sun County and I want to retire there. It's a good point 
and what I've come to realise with Galantha that it's best not to become overawed by its scale. I tend to introduce elements in stages rather than trying to do everything at once. Here's another that I received by Facebook. I never look at Facebook, so I caught it by chance. Just a note to say that I've been enjoying the Grognard files. Excellent stuff. The zine was tremendous. Also pleased to hear that he'll be giving Call of Cthulhu 7th edition a go when you pick up the Fungi campaign again. If there's anything I can help with, please let me know. You've already had Rick on, so if you want the Cthulhu side of things, you know where I am. All the best. Cheers, Mike Mason. Thanks for that, Mike. It would be great to have you on talking about your experience from back in the day. I'll be in touch. Mike is a patron and he's referring to the zine that we produced. The first issue is available as a PDF if you join the Patreon campaign. The podcast will always be free, but the tips that we receive via Patreon help cover the cost, help us to seek out material um, that we can include in future episodes and it supports other projects. I revamped the goals and uh, changed the awards for the different pledge levels um, over the last couple of weeks. We're going to produce another fanzine in 2017 and a hard copy will be available for all patrons. So it's now better than ever to become an honorary member of the Armchair Adventurers Club. This month, Adam Alexander joined us at the $1 level. Welcome, Adam. Steve Gonzalez has joined at the $5 level. So, uh, as a thank you, I'm going to roll him something special from a table. This time, I'm reaching for the Luther Arkwright supplement for Mithras. It's full of atmosphere and great story hooks and loads and loads of tables. So, Steve, I'm going to roll out and find out how you became an agent for Valhalla, moving across the parallels. Okay. 98. That's a high roll. So, uh, it says here that you were originally being groomed unwittingly by the disruptors, and you were brought to Valhalla for safekeeping and operational duties. That explains a lot, Steve. Well, thank you for joining us. This is a final reminder that I'll be games mastering the Fire Opal of Set scenario at Convergence in Stockport using the Mithras Luther Arkwright rules. It takes place on the 18th of March 2017. So if you're listening to these as they're going out, there's still plenty of space available if you can get to Stockport at that time. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, I'd like to tell you about what's featured in the next episode, but it says here that it's a top secret. So, I'll put my tux on and say, until next time, adios amigos.